0: As you do so, let me encourage you to join me now as we take our copies of God's Word and together we turn to Acts chapter 1. This morning we'll look at verses 12 through 26. So, Acts 1 12 through 26 as we are continuing onward in our series in the book of Acts. So far as we have been in this chapter 1 in our series on Acts, we have examined the authorship of this book that there's a physician, Luke who was inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit to write this. But the reason for this book as well, to chronicle the birth and growth of the early church. And part of that growing story, part of that birth story, is the importance of the ascension and the work of God in revival. And so this morning, we will uh, look as we move forward in our study, and we look in the narr- we move forward in the narrative of the birth of the church. We'll look at that in Acts 1, 12 through 26. And so as we do that, let's take some time uh, to pray for God's blessing on our time and his word. And Lord, we, we, we do pray in that manner. Help us who come now to not think this is just some tradition or exercise or even something we have to endure so we can mark off the box that we, we made it through church this week. Indeed, uh, rather, Lord, we pray that we will see this as the time where we get to gather together as your people, to hear your word and that your spirit will be here among us to make us able to hear the word as we ought to and that it will minister to us as it, as it is in your will and it will encourage us in our faith and maybe even encourage some of us to turn to faith in you for the first time. Lord, bless the reading and preaching and hearing of your word in this way this morning, we pray Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, and we will stand together for the reading of God's word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas. Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in his ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in our own language, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us there all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Basarbus, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, and they said, "You Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of his ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place." And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the with the eleven apostles. And so the grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. So many of our of the great stories in our literature have a great villain. We can think of CS Lewis's book The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and The White Witch. JRR Tolkien's The Lord of Rings and Sauron. Harry Potter series and Voldemort, He Who Must Not Be Named. We can probably think of others as well. And what purpose do these villains normally serve in these stories? Well, in part, they help to highlight how good will overcome evil. These villains serve a purpose to help us see how good the good really is and how that good cannot be overcome by evil, but will always prevail over evil. And these villains can serve in interesting ways. Some of them are just, they're just plain evil through and through. They're evil in their simplicity. That Every part of their being is evil. Others, though, are are a little bit more complex than that. There may be a little bit more humanity, a little bit more good mixed in, but overall, the evil is dominant in their lives. So no matter how simple or complex the villain is, at the end, their goal, their mission is is the same. They want to suppress good, and they want to overcome good with evil. And so when we come to Scripture... We find that scripture is a great story, but not, it isn't fiction, it's factual, it's historical, it's theological, it's glorious. It's a great story, but it's God's story, it is an error, it is infallible, but when we read the great story of scripture, we find that it has a great villain, and we all know who that villain is, it's Lucifer. Who began as an angel, but in jealousy and coveting, he becomes a fallen angel because he wanted to be God and he tried to overthrow God. And so, because of this, he becomes the great villain of the story of the Bible. And so, it's no mistake then how Scripture is structured. The first book of the Bible is Genesis, and that name means the beginning. And the very first person we are introduced to in the Bible is God and all of his triumph glory. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then a few verses later, we are told that God decreed in making man and woman, he said, Let us make man in our image. This direct reference to his Trinity. And so as we begin reading Genesis, we are introduced not only to God, but to the fact that this God is good. We know that because at the end of each day of creating, what did he say? This is good. We are introduced to this God who is good because everything he creates is good and is without sin because he is the good God. He is the God without sin. And we see then that he is the pinnacle of all goodness. Anything that is good comes from God. So it's interesting to note that in the structure of Scripture, the first attribute that we are, we are that we know about God is his goodness. It's not necessarily his holiness. It's not so, so much his, his justice, but we're, we're introducing how good God is and who he is what he created, and how he created. Our first introduction to all scripture is to this God who is good. That saying goes, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. But in the structure, what do we find? Well, we find chapter three. In chapter three, we're introduced to the serpent, who we're later told is Lucifer. And what does Lucifer try to do in the good garden of the good God with God's good creation? He tries to usurp the goodness of God. He asked Eve the question, did God really say? And part of what Lucifer meant by that question was this. Would a good God really command you to not eat Of that singularly delicious and delightful tree over there. Eve, would a good God really withhold good from his own creation? Would he withhold it from you, the one he created his own image and the image of goodness? One of the very first things the villain does in the story is he tries to usurp the goodness of God. And the the sad thing is this. He was successful. Adam and Eve created the image of the good triune God at that moment. No long, decided to no longer trust in the goodness of God. And to trust in the goodness of, the, of his commands. And so they took the fruit and they ate of it. And So from that moment forward. We see in, in every word, every verse, every passage, every chapter of scripture. This great ongoing battle of good versus evil like Paul says later on, we don't fight a battle of flesh. We're engaged in a spiritual battle because it's the great, it's the the great God, the good God who is leading his people in goodness and leading them to goodness. And it's the evil Lucifer who all along the way is trying to stop this goodness and to overcome it with evil and wickedness. He is trying to keep God's people from the goodness of God. And understand, that's, that's part of nature of sin. Sin is there to keep us from the goodness of God. It lies to us. It twists the truth. It manipulates the truth to, take, to say to us, no, but do this the other way. Don't do it God's way because if you do it your way or if you do it Satan's way, that's where the goodness is. All along the path to hell are people who have believed that great lie that God isn't good, and maybe Satan really is. He is the great villain of the scriptures, which makes him then the great villain of our faith. He is the one who is engaged in spiritual battle for our eternal souls. He is the one who never stops trying to dissuade us from the goodness of God. Understand this, there is nothing Lucifer wants more than your soul. There is nothing Lucifer desires more than for you to walk away from from the faith, to walk away from the church, to give yourself over to yourself and to give yourself over to the world. He doesn't care about you becoming a Satanist. He doesn't care about you drawing pentagrams all all over town and listening to to Slayer and other satanic death metal bands. That's not what he cares about. What he cares about is this morning. He cares about where you choose to go on Sunday mornings. He cares about who you choose to love and who you choose to follow. He cares about who you choose to emulate. So knowing this knows, knows that you, me, and this is some of the greatest hate that Lucifer has. He wants nothing more than for us to wake up on Sunday morning and go, it's just too rainy to go to church. He wants us to, no, no, nothing more for us to wake up on Monday morning and go, you know what, it's just not worth obeying God this week. He wants us to wake up on Tuesday morning and go, it's just not worth praying or going to prayer meeting. He is the great villain. That he is the great villain of your faith. That he is the great villain of the church. And as we see through those stories of, uh, of Lion of Witch in the wardrobe, of the Lord of Rings, uh, of Harry Potter, all the great villains have their minions, have their followers. And so as we go through Luke's account of the birth of the early church, we see right here in the beginning, who is it that we talk about? Judas Iscariot, who was one of Satan's minions and who plays a large role in the story of Jesus, especially at the end. We know the story of Judas. He was chosen by Jesus to be one of the twelve apostles. He was assigned to be the treasurer for Jesus and the apostles. But we see his character in that he is a thief and he is greedy. But, But to me, and this is this is my own opinion. The most extraordinary thing about Judas is that he was there with Jesus from the very beginning. He was an eyewitness to, to all we read about in the Gospels. All the teachings, all the sermons, all the miracles, all the fellowship of Jesus. Judas was there for all of it. And in the end, what did all that matter to Judas? Judas. The Sermon on the Mount, the teaching on prayer, the feeding of thousands, the raising of the dead, the time spent in fellowship with Jesus—what did all matter to him? But when it came to thirty pieces of silver and some land, it mattered nothing to him. Judas is a villain. He's a willing villain, who Lucifer used to try and stop the goodness of Jesus and the goodness of the gospel. And strategically speaking. It was a great move by Lucifer. He had an inside man to the 12. He had an inside man to, to wreck havoc, to, to set this ambush of Jesus. Surely, this would strategically stop the spread of the gospel because Judas would give Jesus over to the hands of the officials and the officials would kill him. Did they succeed? Did Lucifer's great plan, the Judas's willing hand, did it succeed? No. And this chapter tells us their story of defeat and of God's eternal victory. That God's goodness always wins. God's goodness always overcomes evil. And I think it's interesting to note that Luke puts the story of Judas at the beginning of the story of the church. Because I think it serves as that reminder that God will always work good from evil and that nothing and no one will stop the spread of the gospel. No matter what happens in the world, God's church will always prevail and his gospel will always go forth. They say in, in, a, in, in another manner, if Lucifer couldn't stop it through Judas, it just ain't going to happen. And so Luke begins this story of good triumphing over evil by connecting it with the ascension. Verse twelve. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So so Luke is telling us that the, the ascension of Jesus didn't take place in secret. They didn't go some far off field and, and Jesus just ascended up. It took place within full view of the city of Jerusalem. And the eleven apostles watched Jesus ascend. They were given directions by two angels, and they obeyed what they were commanded by Jesus. They returned to Jerusalem, and I like that. That Luke, in his thoroughness, gives us the mileage as well. That right? as, as they're going to get reimbursed from the IRS right on their mileage. Uh, they, they were a distance, but what he's saying there is a distance calculated to be about three fourths of a mile. So they come back to Jerusalem, and what's the first thing they do? When they go to a familiar place, verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. This hopefully kind of triggers something in their mind. This is the upper room. This is the, the same upper room where Jesus sat with his disciples at their last supper and where Judas was going to betray Jesus. And this is where Jesus had appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. And this room had now become the headquarters for the disciples. And Luke then, after he gives that detail, he he lists all the apostles. And the last time that all the the disciples have been listed by name had been when Jesus had commissioned them for ministry. And and think about that. Things had been fresh and exciting then. They were were with Jesus and, and Jesus was going to send them out in the ministry. So Luke does it again here to show that there's going to be a new beginning. Something is new on the horizon. Something new is coming this way. And what that new is, is the outpouring of the Spirit, which will lead to the birth of the early church. So Luke is giving his hints all along the way of how good is going to overcome evil. Here's the same room where Judas left out to betray Jesus. The last time Jesus was gathered with his disciples, then in this same room... It's gonna come a new beginning. It's gonna come to church. What's it come from? We know where, and we know who, but from from what? All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women, and married a mother of Jesus and his brothers. They were told to go back to Jerusalem to wait. So in waiting, they pray. They don't cast out conspiracy theories. They don't start making strategic plans. They don't start doing anything else. They just pray. And we're not told exactly what they pray for, but I think we can assume that some part of prayer, maybe a significant portion of it, was they are going to pray about what was going to happen next. But they don't know. So they pray. In the waiting, they prayed. In our waiting, in our waiting on the Lord and His will to be done, we're called to pray. But the, the, the Christian life, according to Paul, is a life of continuous prayer. We are tempted to treat prayer like it's a fountain where we go by and we, we flip our penny into it. Or if we're really serious about wanting an answer, maybe flip a quarter into it. And we just kind of make our prayer and then we walk away and we don't think about it again. and Maybe if ever. But that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of continual prayer. We're told to ask, to seek, to not. Jesus even gives us permission to nag God with our prayers. He gives the parable. And in that parable, he says, look, if, he, if the Father doesn't answer your prayer the first time, pray again, then pray again, then pray again. Keep on praying until he answers. Isn't it wonderful that the Son gives us permission to nag the Father with our prayers? But that's a life of continual prayer, isn't it? And that's the life we're called to. So as the apostles and the others are gathered up in the upper room and they're surrounded by evil, they're surrounded by the Pharisees and Sadducees and local government, what do they do? They prayed. And as we sit down here on this cold, dreary Sunday morning, we're surrounded by a world of evil. We're surrounded by a world that is increasingly hateful of us. And we can point and we can blame and we can wring our hands. And it changes nothing. But the moment we devote ourselves to prayer, it changes everything. Like we see here, we're we're called to gather together in that singular mind of Christ and all his people and we are to pray. And from this, this prayer time, Peter, in his usual role as a spokesperson for the apostle, stands up. And around everybody who's there, who's gathered, the number's about 120 people, and he addresses them about what comes next. But the first thing he does is he emphasizes the sovereignty of God. That it was always a triumph God's plan for there to be a cross and an empty tomb. I think sometimes we can be tempted to think that, that, that God is always trying to catch up with actions on earth. He's, he's waiting for us, like, like he's playing chess with us. He's waiting to see what move we make so that he can figure out what move he will make. That's a sad God, isn't it? Why would you want to pray to a God who has to wait to see what you're going to do, what your neighbor's going to do, what the guy down the street's going to do, and the guy out in Montana's going to do? We believe in a sovereign God who works through the works of providence. So we see it's no accidents. It was no plan B. There was no backup plan. From before time, there was going to be a cross. From before time, there was going to be an empty tomb. From before time, there was going to be an ascension. From before time, there was going to be salvation for God's people. Why is this important for us to know? It's important for us to know it in this reason. Because it means that evil will never triumph. The sovereign God is in control. The sovereign God who is in control, is good, he cannot be defeated, and his perfect plan will always be accomplished. The goodness of God and his will can never be defeated. Therefore, the cross was no accident. It had been foretold years, hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus that what would be so evil in the eyes of humanity would be for the eternal goodness and the salvation for God's people. It was central to God's grand design for the human race. And it took place exactly according to God's good plan. And that point is going to be made over and over again throughout the book of Acts, that the apostles understood God's sovereign plan in office. That means then, that Judas's part in all of this was no accident. It had always been a part of the plan of God. Now, this does not negate the responsibility of Jesus of Judas. His motivation was not to fulfill the plan of God. His motivation was born of rebellion and deceit and greed. He did not have good in mind and in heart when he did what he did. It was a part of God's perfect plan. But he had culpable, uh, Judas had culpable responsibility in it and so Peter speaks to this and he speaks to this to lead them into the need, their need for another apostle there's something interesting here Peter is talking about Judas Peter and Judas were both disciples of Jesus they had both followed Jesus they have both been present that night he was betrayed, and they both had betrayed Jesus, hadn't they? Judas betrayed him to the officials. Peter betrayed him in the courtyard by denying him three times. But what's the difference between these two? The difference is simple. One turned in faith to Jesus for forgiveness, and the other did not. Good overcame evil and so Peter tells the story of Judas his he betrayer he's a liar and he tells then the price that was paid for such a life now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all of his intestines all of his bowels gushed out Y'all can read that passage again before you eat lunch this afternoon. It's a graphic account, isn't it? The Gospels tell us that he went out and hung himself. The Acts tell the book of Acts tells us the rest of the story. And all the story tells us that Judas died in an evil way to match his evil ways. That that evil man died in an evil way. Justice was served. Good overcome, overcame evil. Not a time had come for them to replace Judas. It needed to be someone who had been with Jesus since his baptism by John and up through his, his resurrection and up through his ascension. And the last words of Jesus we see in verse 8 have been a promise that the apostles would receive power and that they would be witnesses. Well, a witness is someone who has seen and who can then describe to others what he has seen so, so for this reason, it's necessary that the replacement apostle be the one who has seen Jesus, one who had been a witness of all that had taken place. And that would bring the number back to 12, 12 apostles to match the 12 tribes of Israel, to match the representation of God's people. And out of that whole group, there are two who fit this description, this responsibility. Joseph called Basarbus, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And so what do they do? Did they take a, a, a vote? Did they see who was, who was most popular? Then no, they prayed. and They said, Lord, you know the hearts of these men. And you know who you want to serve. Show us then whom you want to serve. And they do that, they cast lots. Because that would, be, that would be the Lord who would make the final decision. It's interesting. We see casting lots in the Old Testament. We see it up in the New Testament. This is the last time that lots will be cast in the Bible. Because after this, the decisions will be prayerfully made by the church. So Luke, through the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us as the readers to understand that the story of the church is a story of good overcoming evil. That's part of the testimony of us as a church. Because Satan has been at work since the beginning to overcome good. Satan was at work in Judas to overcome good. Satan is still at work to overcome the goodness of God. But here's the thing. Satan has been failing since the beginning. Because God sent out Adam and Eve from the garden. Covered in the skins of animals, innocent animals, whose blood had to be shed to cover the shame of their sins, pointing us to the gospel. God had promised The first promise he made after the fall of man uh, to Adam and Eve was to to send forth a mediator. Satan has been failing since the beginning. He may win some battles, but he has always he 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 has already lost the war. Because the goodness of God will always overcome evil, it will always be victorious. That's why we have this great motto of the church, that even the gates of hell shall not prevail against God's goodness. So Luke purposely frames us in the story of the church. Because the church and this church stands as a testimony to the goodness of God. Because what is it we do every Lord's Day? We wake up because of the goodness of God. And we live in homes, nice homes, because of the goodness of God. And we have clothes because of the goodness of God. We have food because of the goodness of God. And we get to gather for worship. To sing our praises to the goodness of God. To to pray to God because, because we trust in the goodness of His answers. To read and to hear His word for that balm of the soul we need. To hear about the goodness of God. Every week we get to come and exalt in Christ. Where the goodness of God is eternally exemplified in His perfect life suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. Every Lord say, we get to come and exult in the goodness of God. And all along, even when Satan has tried to stop this, he has failed. Because God's goodness will always overcome evil. But the question comes down to this, where will you choose to be next Sunday? And where will you choose to be the Sunday After? And where will you choose to be the Sunday after that? Will you choose this? To come and glorify the goodness of God and the goodness of who He is and the goodness of what He has done for you, and the goodness of not only how He loves you, but the goodness of how much He loves you. Will you choose the goodness of this day and of worship? And there's really only one answer for that for God's people isn't there. Because where else and what else would we, rather, where would we rather be and what we would rather be doing than to join together to exult in the goodness of God. This goodness that has been under satanic, satanic assault since the garden, but the goodness has always prevailed. And you and I get to join in that sweet victory of worship to gather in the goodness of God to worship the one who so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. And there's I'm going to murder the English here and you know me about later. There is nothing gooder than the goodness of the gospel. Let's pray.